1: clowns on the left
2: and the jokers on the right
1: and join Michael Smirconish right here in the middle.
2: This is the Smirconish podcast for independent minds.
3: The Iowa caucus is next Monday night. Is it already over? And I don't just mean Iowa and I don't really just mean New Hampshire. I mean the entire Republican nomination process. Let's answer that question, not with hyperbole, not with particular candidates talking points, but with Data, because we've got the right person in G. Elliott Morris. He's the author of Strength in Numbers How Polls Work and Why We Need Them. He's also the editorial director of data analytics at ABC News, where he develops polling aggregation and election forecasting models. From 2018 to 2023, he was the senior data journalist and U.S. correspondent for the economist, and he joins me now. Elliot, thank you so much for your time. Let's begin with your book, Strength in Numbers, How Polls Work, and Why We Need Them. In the past, when I've had conversations like you and, about, you and I are about to engage in, there will be that caller who says, why do we even have to have polls? What should I say to that person? Hey, Michael. Well, first off, thanks for having me here. Um,
4: I guess if if your listener asks me this question. I mean, to me, it comes down to a basic democratic principle, which is that the government should listen to the people. Um, This is, you know, it sounds simple to us. Uh, We, as journalists, you and I have conversations with voters all the time. And those conversations via the news media, for example, make their way up to the halls of Congress uh, and the White House. But there's lots of people who don't have conversations with people like you and me, and there's no guarantee that the news media accurately represents uh, the voices of the people in the halls of government. You know, similarly, elections don't always represent the popular will or the majority opinion uh, of American people. So that's, you know, that's where polls come in. Um, If you want to think about it democratically, they're just another way of talking to the people. Uh, and, And so why should we discard
3: that? In other words, it's a good snapshot of a moment in time of public sentiment, why would we not want to know what the public is thinking about the public's government?
4: Exactly. Yeah, we we live in a democracy. Um, both before elections, we want to know how people are feeling about candidates for journalistic reasons, um, and we want to know how people are feeling about the issues for the democratic reasons. Um, these these tools sort of work hand in hand, and in the view in my view, and I think in the view of most pollsters. Certainly, the one I espouse in my book.
3: OK, so relative to the book title, and I'm going to get to your data analysis because I'm, I'm really eager to discuss it with you. But the subtitle of the book says how polls work. Here's something else that I hear from callers generally. Well, I've never been called. And after all, they can't even reach people unless they have a landline. What should I say to them?
4: Yeah, first off, that's not true. Um, I mean, if I were talking to direct directly, perhaps I would be a little friendlier about that. Um, But that's not true. Uh, Pollsters call people uh, via cell phone as well. In fact, I think about 90% of the phone calls in the latest New York Times poll, for example, is cell phone. And that's because most people don't have landlines. And pollsters know that. Um, So you can be called for a poll on your cell phone. In fact, my wife did one for Gallup just the other day, uh, which was pretty neat for me as a poll-obsessed journalist. Um, Polls also work via the Internet. You can go online today to several online poll outlets and sign up yourself to take a poll uh if if you are a michael smirconish show listener and you are frustrated that no one ever calls you well you can sign up to be polled uh via via the internet and you'll get an email or you'll get a little notification uh, on the website that you should come and take this poll that the pollster wants you uh to take so these demographic these questions of demographic representativeness are pretty much solved i would say Uh, The the bigger question that pollsters fight all the time, and the one that you'll hear about in the news, is whether or not they're politically representative to the degree we expect of an election prediction. Um, So if they're off by one or two points in an election prediction context, like in 2000, in 2016, you'll hear pollsters chastised for not being accurate. Uh, What I remind people in in my book, and what's relevant for your, your listeners, is one or two points is really not that much in the grand scheme of things. When we're thinking about you know whether or not Americans favor uh, a certain domestic or foreign policy. Whether or not they're telling us that something is wrong in their personal life and their financial situation, uh, in the area that they live, one or two points is uh, really not all that important. Um, if if a, if an issue is already polling at 50-50, if it's 49-51, that's not going to change uh, the uh, you know how Congress acts, and and nor should it, uh, argumentatively. and belief. So uh,
3: that's that's where I begin. Elliot's book is titled Strength in Numbers, How Poles Work and Why We Need Them.
2: This is the Smirconish Podcast from Sirius XM.
3: Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com.
1: Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere
2: you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders.
5: a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Available wherever you get your podcasts.
2: The Michael Smirconish Program. Listen weekdays at 9 a.m. East on POTUS. Sirius XM Channel 124. And any time on the Sirius XM app.
3: Okay, Elliot Morris. On December 15, you published for ABC's 538. Under the headline, the 2024 Republican presidential primary could be over in a month. Here was the lead. You said Friday marks one month until the 2024 Iowa caucus, the official start of the Republican presidential nominating process. But the primary has been carrying on unofficially for nearly a year now. And in some ways, it is basically already over. And what then followed was a data analysis. Talk to me about your approach before you give the conclusion. What, were, what is it you were seeking to do? Yeah, what we want to know, uh, or or, or, or what the
4: the question we are trying to answer is, uh, do presidential candidates polling at 60% in the national polls go on to win the national uh, nomination for president from their party? Essentially, do polls translate into victories uh, at high enough levels? So what we did is uh, we averaged all the polls for every presidential nomination contest since 1980, uh, and we looked at the results of those average on December 15th when we published this article for every candidate. You know, this is people uh, like Bernie Sanders in 2020, Elizabeth Warren in 2020, but all the way back, you know, the, the candidates such as Bob Dole in, in 1988, right? Um, and so we can answer this question. We can look at the candidates who were polling really well on December 15th in their election cycle. And we can see if they went on to win. And that's the analytical strategy. You told me
3: not to tell you the conclusions. You'll tell me (laughs) when you want me to tell you the conclusions. Okay. well, let me let me just say (laughs) at the outset that when you go back from 80 forward, only one candidate polls higher at this stage or more literal December 15 than Donald Trump. And that was Bush in 92, uh, meaning Papa Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush. Yeah, Papa Bush, um,
4: and, you know, importantly, his, his party is uh, he's, he's the incumbent at this point. Right. Um, so uh, he's, he's a bit of an edge case. But uh, you could argue to me that Donald Trump is sort of like an incumbent. He was very recently president. He has, as we'll get into, very strong support from his party. So uh, I, I think the um, I, I think the case of Bush is, is still instructive. There's a couple of other candidates who come close. Uh, George Bush in 2000, for example, was polling at 60 percent. Hillary Clinton in 2016 was polling at 56 percent. And all of these people we're talking about, of course, went on to win their party nomination.
3: And that's the takeaway. You've, You've looked at Trump now against, I'll say, modern equivalents to say, how often does someone in his position, according to the polling data, win their party's nomination. And I guess I'm going to steal your thunder. He's got a nine in ten, in 10 chance of winning the nomination by your analysis. True?
4: Yeah, that's true. By the polls, that's true. And in fact, that was as of December 15. We're um, a couple of weeks removed away from that. We're only a week out from Iowa now. Three weeks later, that probability is markedly higher. At this point, um, I, I don't want to give a probability just because it's so high as to be misleading. Uh, what I'll say instead is, according to the polls, the national primary polls, if Donald Trump loses the nomination uh, for the Republican Party this year, that is the most surprising political event of perhaps the last 50 years. Um, his, his lead is just so dominable with no clear candidate posing um, a real threat to him. Again, that's just based on the empirical polling data.
3: If he were to lose the nomination, who comes to mind in terms of a comparison, an analogy of an upset?
4: Yeah, the closest is Hillary Clinton in 2008. Um, At this point in the the primary, uh, I'll just use some updated numbers. We don't need to keep talking about December. Uh, in, In, you know, on January 5th in the national polls, she was at about 45 percent and she goes on to lose the nomination of course to barack obama what's different though um well first off it's 20 points different from where trump is today um but what's different is that there are more challengers now and they're all pulling worse uh, than and clinton's challengers were at, at this point in uh 2000 and uh in 2008 On the eve of Iowa, that's uh, January 6th, I believe, um, 2008, Obama was at 24 percent. John Edwards was at at 15 or so. And Iowa boosts both of them uh, and really hurts Clinton's chances um, because they looked like credible challengers early on. Right now, there's no credible challenger in the national horse race. the, the closest candidate is Ron DeSantis, and he has 12 percent, half of the support Barack Obama had in 2008 when he went on to stage what is a pretty incredible comeback story um, in terms of presidential primary campaigns. Nikki Haley, right, she's at 11 percent. That's not that much worse than 12 percent. But in terms of statistics and odds, um, it's just it's it's so far away from Donald Trump's 62 percent as to be, at least historically, as to be historically
2: insurmountable.
3: Elliot Morris is the editorial director of data analytics at ABC News. I love this data-driven conversation.
2: This is the Smirconish podcast from Sirius XM.
3: Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4.
2: Michael Smircona's program, listen weekdays at 9 a.m. East on POTUS, Sirius XM Channel 124, and anytime on the Sirius XM app.
3: Elliot Morris is the editorial director of data analytics at ABC News. I love this data-driven conversation. I want to read something aloud that you published on December 15 because this was an eye-opener for me. I was naively thinking, well, can't a candidate make up a lot of ground? Isn't there room for movement? And here's what you wrote. Quote, here's another way to think about it. Over the course of all presidential primary contests since 1980, the average candidate saw their national polls move by about 17 percentage points total. Between their first set of polls and the end of the contest or when they dropped out. As of December 15, 2023, the average candidate had already seen their polls move by roughly eight points. That means the average candidate has about nine points of movement left, even if Haley or DeSantis gained double that. What we'd expect to happen roughly one out of 20 times, if we could rerun the primary over and over, they would only be polling at around 30%. And even if all those votes came from Trump, he would still be ahead of them by about 13 points. In fact, even if all remaining GOP primary voters chose one single non-Trump alternative, he would still lead nearly two voters to one. Expand on that.
4: Yeah, that's just a function, really, of, of him being at 62%. Uh, it, it's not the 2016 primary anymore. When Trump is polling at 35% and there's several competitors uh, who could feasibly win the nomination, and people like Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, John Kasich, right? Um, this year, he's at 62%, two-thirds, roughly, of of primary voters have decided affirmatively before votes are, uh, have, have even been cast that they want to support Donald Trump. Um, they tell us in polls that they want to vote for him because they feel like he is their, their just party leader, that he is their ideological match, um, and that he will fight for them in Congress in Washington like he did last time. Um, it, it's not a matter of another candidate saying, I'm more electable right? Or I'm a better ideological match because voters have already told us Trump is their top ideological match. Um, At at 62%, right, there's just simple math there. If every other uh, voter decided today that they're going to support Ron DeSantis, his support would only increase to 38%. Um, That's a 62 to 38% difference that would be a historical uh, margin in a presidential primary already, <laughs> even, even if you had that sort of historical uh, coalescing behind Ron DeSantis, which, again, we do not expect. That would already be a, a very big surprise.
3: Okay, Elliot, what about this? I, I had J. Ann Selzer, the, the sort of preeminent Iowa pollster on my CNN program on Saturday, and one of the subjects that I discussed with her was the expectation game. And there's an idea, a mindset out there that if somebody exceeds expectations next Monday in Iowa, then he or she would have the wind at their sails and they could make up the ground against Donald Trump. What does the data say?
4: Yeah, it's a hopeful if you're betting for that, you're being hopeful. Um, so if you're the Trump or if you're a DeSantis or a Haley or a Vivek Ramaswamy campaign manager saying, oh, we'll get a bump out of Iowa, that's not necessarily a good strategy. Empirically, she's right. Um, and, and in this article, we point to Iowa as a key catalyst of change in the presidential primary process. I'll give you a couple of examples. Just Let's just run back the 2020 primary here for a second. Um, on the eve of, of Iowa, which is February 3rd, uh, Joe Biden's polling at 26%. Uh, Bernie Sanders is pulling at 22%. um, And let's just pick, I guess, uh, Pete Buttigieg, because he he goes on to perform really well. He's pulling at about 7 or 8% um, in the national polls. Okay, Iowa happens. Um, uh, Joe Biden performs rather poorly. Uh, Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg beat expectations, let's say. Uh, After Iowa, Joe Biden's polls sink by about five points. Uh, and the other candidates gain about three points in the national polls uh, each in the two weeks after Iowa. So there, we'll say, even even optimistically, that Iowa can cause a four-point change in the national polls. And again, that's in a primary where voters are already telling us they're torn between the candidates. Because Joe Biden's he's leading the race and he's only at 26% or so. Um, Another example, again, the 2008 primary, Barack Obama's polls do increase by quite a bit more. After Iowa, they go from about 24 to 34%, a 10 point swing. That is one of the largest swings in national polls in history. And again, just to underline uh, the point here, if Ron DeSantis today got a 15 percentage point bounce, one of the biggest ever in national polls after Iowa from a surprise he would still be behind Donald Trump by 30 points.
3: So I guess where I'm coming down is to say if the 61 percent or thereabout is accurate, Trump's national poll standing among Republicans, and, and it's not a one off. That's kind of what all the data has been showing. If that's accurate, it would be absolutely unprecedented for him to blow the lead that he has and lose the nomination.
4: That's right. It, it, it would be one of the most surprising, if not the most surprising, political event of, let's say, the last half century. Uh, and mainly because I don't know much about presidential primaries uh, before 1960. Uh, <laughs> so someone else might say it would be even, even more surprising than that, maybe all the right. last century. Um, wipe, it's, it's just that dominant.
3: Wipe the slate clean. Make us all look smart. Hey, I heard this guy on Michael's program. His name is Elliot Morris. He's over at ABC. He's a data analyst. Here's what he left me with. What's the takeaway? At, at least in the case of the primary, what
4: I want people to know is um, things can change uh, after Iowa, after New Hampshire. In fact, we should expect polls in the national race to change. Candidates beat expectations um, and, and 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 other candidates, you know, SAG expectations and get punished. Um So going back to 1980, 1972, even, uh, the largest changes in the national primary horse race uh, ever, if you applied them to the election today, would not be enough to overcome Donald Trump's lead. And that's not saying it won't happen. Um, There also, you know, there could be a meteor strikes Donald Trump. Um, He's also rather old. We don't know how how healthy he is. He might change his mind because of his criminal convictions, right? There's, there's other edge cases here that could make him not win or not accept or not be given the party nomination. But at least according to the polls, at least according to what voters are going to decide, uh, it would be historically unprecedented at this point for him to lose uh, the Republican presidential primary.
3: Elliot, that was excellent. Thank you so much. Please come back. Good luck with the book. It's called Strength in Numbers. Yep, thanks for having me on, Michael. G. Elliott Morris, ladies and gentlemen, is, as I identified him, the editorial director of data analytics at ABC News. And as I was asking him for his takeaway, I was writing in the margin, my takeaway, huge cushion. Trump is playing with house money, if you know the gambling
2: expression. Hear more of Michael Smirkanish on SiriusXM's POTUS, Channel 124.
1: Live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east, or anytime on the SXM app.
2: Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at smirconish.com.
0: Michael Smirkanish for Independent Minds. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer... Arcea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
5: Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful?